Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Deep Delorme, thank you very much for joining us on the air. Several years ago, after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, what's the impact of these unmarked graves on Indigenous peoples across Canada? And are you confident that national and provincial political leaders and their governments are taking the current reality as seriously as they must? Thank you, Roy, and good afternoon, everybody. I, I just wanted to mention there's a one eight six six number with anybody listening that this may trigger. Uh, this is a very sensitive, emotional conversation uh, that we're about to have. You know, Roy, I, I'm... I was born in 82. I, I'm, I'm an elected chief. I'm a spokesperson for my First Nation. I am not a residential school survivor. I was raised by residential school survivors. My grandparents went to residential school. My great-grandparents went to residential school. So, you know, over, over years, it, it's, it's really a struggle at moments to, to remain core to being Indigenous and to remain you know, a proud Canadian as, as you know, a dual citizen. I'll, I'll just try and simplify it. And the recent findings uh, of these unmarked graves, uh, the gravesite is the conversation, Roy, but it's the truth that is really painful. And it's not just for all Canadians, it's for Indigenous people as well. We, we have been colonized quite intensely and decolonizing is going to be even more tough. For the past few weeks, um, a lot of focus has been given on the services and making sure anybody triggered uh, were able to to be beside them. Your question, Roy, about um, you know, our, our elected officials, the Truth and Reconciliation call to action is for all Canadians. And, and in this Westminster governance system, we, we live in, in Canada, you know, our MPs, our, our MLAs, with, with the upcoming federal election that, that is brewing, everybody's starting to talk about, you know, I hope any MP that knocks on someone's door, I hope the first question that every proud Canadian says is, what role are you going to play in the truth and reconciliation calls to action? Um, yeah, so Roy, I, I'll leave my opening comments to that. I have that 866 number, by the way. It's one 925 one And that's the Residential Schools Crisis Line. Uh, Chief Delorme, what's surprising to many non-Indigenous Canadians, and again, it shouldn't be, we should know this, but it is surprising that the residential schools operated into the 1990s, with the last one closing in Saskatchewan in 1996. And these places in which Indigenous children suffered physical and sexual abuse, as well as malnutrition and more, I would suggest don't really deserve to be referred to as schools. But, but to know that it was government policy until 25 years ago should disturb everyone in this country to the core. Absolutely, Roy. The residential school had one purpose, to brainwash Indigenous people. So that Indigenous people, from, you know, on Cowes' perspective at Maryville, from 1898 to 1996, was to um, make sure that you, you know, pray to a god, a Roman Catholic Church god. you got to get baptized. Every child that arrived at the Roman Catholic Church, the parents didn't have an option. They were baptized. And um, to speak only English to uh, be submitted to the Queen uh, under the monarchy. And so the impact today, Roy, is, is it continues. The intergenerational trauma continues. We don't have to go far in our country to look at our budget, that's how much 
incarceration dollars, you know, and look at the population in there, the child welfare and how much children are, are of Indigenous consent. So it does continue. And, you know, that's where, you know, the conversation the last two weeks, as, you know, I have mentioned, and I use the word accidental racism. You know, in, in the baby boomer generation, when the textbooks were talking about Canadian history, they weren't talking about residential school because it was still going on. They weren't talking about treaties because the treaties were just a um, almost like a decoy to Canada just, just to, re- to, to get Indigenous people on, on reserves. You know, the Spirit and Antenna Treaties is alive and well today. So, you know, we, we have a lot of reflection to do. And, you know, the moving forward, you know, that's where I think a lot of this ignorance and accidental racism, we have to address it head on. So how would you suggest, Chief, that this accidental racism, that's a very interesting term, how would you suggest that this accidental racism be addressed head-on? What are the, what are the, what's the first step that has to be taken? Is it, is it really absorbing and understanding the, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission? The Truth and Reconciliation calls to action. There are over 100,000 authors to that. Two of them are my parents. In 2008, after the then Prime Minister Harper apologized, they, they, the government of Canada funded a commission. And they went across Canada um, numerous times listening to survivor stories. The survivors came up with 94 calls to action to make sure that the residential school impact um, was transitioned to a more nation-to-nation, um, a more in- Indigenous inclusion. And, and they're all there. And... You know, we got to implement them, Roy. Like, that, it's, it's that simple. These are survivors that have, the ones that made it, Roy, the ones that, that, that had to endure and accommodate and, and, and endure the pain and are still walking amongst this, this land we share. So that's one piece. The second one is the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls called to action. Roy, one of the toughest people to be in this country is, is an Indigenous female. And the, the commission of the 231 calls to action are there. Um, you know, in the coming years, months, I do hope that this could be our start. And to, you know, your question, Roy, about, you know, how do we, you know, address the accidental racism? Our eyes are open in this country. And if we continue to just remain ignorant, I will be removing the accidental when I be, when I be saying that accidental racism continues. Because there is one truth, and once truth prevails then reconciliation can happen. We can't jump right to reconciliation. Canada has to accept that there's one truth in this country, and it's a tough truth to accept. But, I mean, we all inherited this. We didn't create residential schools today. We didn't create the Indian Act, but we inherited this. So if we're proud Canadians, we must accept that we need to reflect on the history we inherited. There's something we've talked about on this program on uh, quite a few occasions, including with... um your counterpart at Atawapiskat, former counterpart, uh, Bruce Shishish, uh, Chief Shishish, called into this program, and he's been a guest on a number of occasions. And we talk about the unsafe and not easily available drinking water. And I think that is a common denominator issue for most people where they can maybe understand better what the reality is for First Nations. That Here we live in this first, first world country. Uh, which has been described by the United Nations several times as being the best country in which to live. But we live in this first world nation, 
And we have First Nation communities, not one, not two, not a dozen, triple, in triple numbers, maybe more, where safe, clean drinking water is either not available or only sporadically available. Doesn't that, Chief Delorme, really, isn't that just a, a bottom line issue that we should all wrap our heads around? You know, Roy, we, we live in one of the greatest countries in this world. Uh, we're, you know, we're a developed country. We're a G7 country. And there are people in this country, indigenous nations, that don't have clean drinking water, have boil water advisories. In this country, we're around sixth in the world on the index for, for, for you know, one of the best nations to live in. If you included the indigenous communities across this nation, the over 600, we would be around 65th. And so investment needs to happen. Technicians need to be there. And, you know, I know this current government is trying. I, I as one nation, they have invested in our water treatment plant in, in means I, I have not seen in the past. And, you know, we're very grateful for that. But we are, you know, in a location that is more in the southern part along the number one highway. Some of my counterpart leaders who are in more isolated areas away from popul- by, by cities, it is tougher to get there. It is, you know, the capacity. You need to train our own Indigenous people to be certified to run these water treatment plants. Uh, there, are, there is work to do, Roy, and I look forward to, to helping uh, from my nation. And, and you know, I, at one day, I do know in the near future, there should be clean drinking water for all nations within Canada. Chief Delorme, when it comes to the uh, responsibilities of the Roman Catholic Church and uh, a papal apology and a delegation of indigenous peoples going to the Vatican before the end of the year, what do you want to say to the Pope? And uh, is, is a papal apology absolutely, um, well, mandatory? Thank you, Roy. In 2008, when Stephen Harper apologized for the role Canada played in residential school, I was next to my father. My father was a man who never hugged me, never told me he loved me, but did everything in life to make sure I, 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 I was you know, ready for this world. I watched my dad cry that day, Roy, because that pain was really deep for him. And he never talked to me about his experience until he got older. That's what an apology does. An apology allows someone who is hurt with anger, frustration, to find a little bit of, I don't want to say peace, but you know, a little bit of grounding. The role the, Ro- the Roman Catholic Church played with Maryville on Cousins from 1898 to 1996, children weren't given an option, Roy, when they got there. They were baptized. The parents didn't have a say. There's a part on our gravesite that we, and when we're, re- we're doing our discovery, we found a role that, and based on our old history, if, if you weren't if you weren't baptized, that is where you had to be buried. And it was on the outside of the, of the gravesite at that time. And, you know, it's in, in when our, because we have unmarked graves, in 1960, it was a priest's um, final decision to save those headstones. And they weren't, they were pushed aside. And that was a priest of the Roman Catholic Church in 1960. You know, and today, the Pope needs to apologize. Because as we are, as Indigenous people, focusing on our internal reconciliation, apologies, you know, do, do matter. But action has to come with them. 
And that is where some have to put down their pride or, or whatever it is and, and, and not addressing it. And apologies need to happen. Chief DeLorme, um, on the issue of uh, churches being burned, arson, you've spoken on this. Uh, what are your thoughts? Roy, I'm a bridge builder in this life. I'm, I'm, I, I'm just going to give you an example. I, I'm, I condone burning down churches. I, I condone, you know, people who are pushing over statues. You know, what, what we have to focus on is, is that hate inside of our psychological view. And you can't just change that overnight, Roy. It, it comes with, with, with circles, talking circles. It comes with, you know, walking into a Walmart or, or a band office and, you know, not feeling judged or, or you know, it, it, everybody has to kind of reset their compass a little bit right now as, as we're looking to really focus on truth. And, you know, my, my I'll give you an example. On Cowes, our church burnt down in 2018. I stood there in the morning and I was just, you know, watching it smolder. Someone would pull up and say it couldn't have burned down any sooner and they drove away. Those are survivors of Cowes' residential school. Someone pulled up and said, my grandparents got married in this church in the 40s. This is the last memory I have of them. I mean, there's, there's, it's these churches, these grave sites, these residential schools that still stand today, those are reality to people, Roy, that are still survivors. And, you know, the anger is there. But, you know, we got to focus on the psychological in this country and reset all of us a little bit to make sure that our children watching that we don't do this to another generation. You said earlier in our conversation that you're calling it accidental uh, racism. Is that correctly? That's correct. And, and you said that if the situation doesn't change dramatically and, and, and equality and, and, and proper relationship develops, I'm not quite sure how to put it into words, honestly. It's just something that it's... It's self-evident, should be, where we ought to be. We're not there. But are you confident that you'll be that you'll be able to continue to call it accidental racism, or are you concerned that you that you will, as you suggested you might, if things don't change, have to remove accidental? Roy, I'm an optimistic mind in this country. I I I I do believe Canada will get it right. You know, I'm 39 years old, Roy. I got a six-month-old, a two-year-old, a four-year-old, and my four-year-old a daughter. I just want to mention that because she wants to be a chief one day. And, you know, we, we could change this in one generation. And, you know, I, I'm going to continue one day at a time doing my part. You know, and anybody listening, our education systems are starting to adjust. You know, I, I got to admit, the baby boomer generation is 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 pretty tough to break with the mindset I, i'm just being honest roy i'm not trying to discredit the baby boomer generation the generation x give or take generation y and millennial i i kind of sense that you know that's the generation that is really gonna gonna just just get this right but i'm not gonna wait for that generation i i will focus as much energy as i can with anybody that i have conversations with and it's on both sides roy i ain't i ain't gonna try and sugarcoat this or or fantasize even a lot of people in my circle, my indigenous nations, you know, we we have been fighting for so long. It's as if, you know, we kind of too, you know, add on to that. All and right. so, you know, a lot of us have to 
And that's what I say, Roy. All of us have to reset our compass just a little bit. And we can get this right. President Biden made this statement. This is part of his statement. After I became president in March, I had my national security advisor ask the intelligence community to prepare a report on their most up-to-date analysis of the origins of COVID-19, including whether it emerged from human contact with an infected animal or from a laboratory accident. I received that report earlier this month and asked for additional follow-up. Questions being asked about the origin of COVID-19. We also spoke with the chairman of the British government's Foreign Affairs Committee about that issue about a month ago, and they're looking into it. They're very interested in how this all came about. In this country, we have Parliament demanding secret documents concerning top security clearance given to two uh, of China's scientists to operate inside the National Microbiology Laboratory Lab in Winnipeg, Level 4 Security, Canada's top biosecurity lab. Uh, Parliament is demanding secret documents be turned over to Parliament. The Trudeau cabinet is refusing to hand over the documents to Parliament and is suing the Speaker while seeking to have a court rule the documents must remain secret. The records include information on the hiring of scientists to work at the Canadian lab, and one of those scientists, at least, is a member of the People's Liberation Army of China. This is really, really, um, well, it's confusing, it's disturbing, and it demands answers many answers and direct answers. We're joined on the program by Dr. Christian Luprecht. He is a professor at leadership in the Department of Political Science, the Royal Military College, a Monk Senior Fellow at the MacDonald Laurier Institute, cross-appointed to Queen's University, an Eisenhower Fellow at the NATO Defense College in Rome, and he's the author of Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, which is about to be published by Oxford Press. Christian, thank you for joining us on the air. There are many questions being asked in this country that demand answers, particularly given the scenario at the Winnipeg Biosecurity Lab. Let's start with this. And I, and I know the, these are, you, you have some thoughts you're going to share with us, your thoughts, um, your assessments. Let's get at the whole question of how COVID-19 began. President Biden wants to know, was it accidentally released from Wuhan? Was it animal-to-human transmission? Or is there a third option? What do you think is, is taking place? I think the issue has come increasingly under question as to what the origins of the virus are, both because I think we've generally become more skeptical about the narrative that has come out of China and because uh, as we connect the dots on the available evidence, I mean, the um, Secretary General of the World Health Organization publicly stated that the investigation by the World Health Organization, the Wuhan virus, uh, was not sufficiently transparent and that the lab leak theory remains on the table. Intelligence organizations have consistently left it open. There's debate in the U.S. intelligence community, the largest and best informed intelligence uh, community in the world. Um, and there's also debate about the virus itself and to what extent the virus may or may not have been subject to genetic modif modification uh, that is beyond what you would normally see in terms of human mutation. And so I think one of the, uh, the, the common theories that uh, this was possibly a, a leak, perhaps an unintended leak out of the lab. But I think 
there's another way to possibly look at this. And this is entirely conjecture of my, on my part. But we know that the Chinese are running a bioweapons program. And so there is some speculation as to the extent to which the Chinese may have released this virus on purpose, precisely to see whether they can engineer a virus that will spread and spread quickly. And that uh, they either released it as an intentional social experiment or a social experiment that subsequently got out of hand. Because bioweapons are notoriously difficult to deploy because you have to get them to where you want them. And then you tend to need a considerable level of expertise in order to uh, weaponize them. And so here the question is, were the Chinese possibly working on the virus that they could deploy and then a virus that they could then subsequently um, modify genetically to make it deadly and to turn it into a deadly pandemic. And so in this case, I think if, if it was intentional, it was not intentional to turn it into a deadly global pandemic. What the Chinese probably didn't account for is the potential mutations that might have occurred in this particular case. But all that to say is I think it is somewhat suspect that um, no one in China seems to want to have a sensible discussion about what the origins of the virus are. And I think part of that is because it's not just about the lab itself and the possible leak. It is also that such a, an investigation um, may uncover components of a bioweapons program and a Chinese capability in bioweapons uh, that the Chinese uh, certainly would not once disclosed under any circumstances. The U.S. State Department a few weeks ago, and this is the conversation I had with the chairman of the British Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee, the U.S. State Department released information or a report that stated that the uh, that China is in fact, and has been since 2015, engaged in the uh, operation of a bioweapons program which they see as potentially the deciding factor in any World War III scenario where the bioweapons would overwhelm the opponent's national health care systems. And again, this is what I spoke with Tom Tugendhat about the British member of parliament and chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Is there a, is there a feeling, uh, you're very connected, well connected with the international intelligence community, is there a feeling uh, out there just permeating that perhaps the scenario that you've ex, uh, described to us? You said it's your conjecture. But is there a sense out there that this is a quite plausible scenario? There's certainly concern that China is looking to be competitive on every spectrum of weapons technology. Everything from hypersonic weapons to underwater unmanned vehicles that can be deployed close to coasts. Um, and certainly um, in the chemical as well as sort of in the bioweapons domain. And one of the things that China has certainly learned is that bioweapons can be extremely disruptive to democratic institutions. And of course, one of the narratives that we've heard time and again from authoritarian regimes is um, about the performative capability of democratic regimes in light of a global challenge such as a pandemic, trying to shore up their own legitimacy and their own credibility. So it is not just about the way you might deploy a bioweapon, for instance, in terms of a deadly virus uh, to cause significant disruption, dislocation to Western economies, but also to their political systems and to the legitimacy 
of those particular political systems. And so given that the origin of perhaps such a virus would, as we have learned here, always be very difficult to attribute to any one particular source, um, it would be a way to cause precisely the sort of global disruption that you might be looking for if you're looking to generate significant uncertainty uh, among democratic regimes um, and at the same time proffer your own authoritarian regime um, as uh, a capable alternative and then trying to capitalize on the economic disruption um, in order to expand your own economic and political ideology, uh, both in the region and across the world. And so I think this may very well have been a test run by the Chinese to see how exactly the world would uh, react uh, to a virus that is not necessarily intended as a deadly virus, but a virus that would cause some disruption. So where does Canada fit fit into this? Have we been have we been duped? And, and what do you suppose might have led the RCMP to investigate or at least to, to, to raid the lab and remove the two scientists? So if my previous conjecture is correct, then one of the concerns is what role might Canadian IP, intellectual property, and know-how and the transfer of such IP have played in the Chinese ability to um, develop and mutate a possible virus. And so I think there, one of the concerns here is, I mean, the RCMP has stated publicly that these individuals are being investigated uh, for the purpose of not having basically done their paperwork to transfer um, some virus samples to uh, the Wuhan lab. But look, I don't think federal civil servants are necessarily going to get fired Less, let alone have a national security investigation simply for not having done uh, paperwork properly. And so what I wonder is whether one of the concerns is that um, some of the samples, um, in particular pot potentially some of the plasma samples and other technology that uh, was developed um, at the National Microbiology Lab in Winnipeg um, was uh, in the process of being transferred irregularly to the lab in Wuhan, subsequently ended up being playing a role in the way um, the Wuhan lab was able to engineer and mutate the virus. So bioweapons programs are very complex. The technology behind it would take uh, years, uh, possibly decades to develop uh, on their own, and so that it would it would make sense that the Chinese would be looking to capitalize on the technology elsewhere, and that essentially Canada provided inadvertently dual-use technology uh, that may have played a role in engineering the virus and, and mutating the virus. And if that, of course, is the case, if there is a genuine connection um, in terms of the conjecture that I'm putting forward between the Wuhan lab and the Winnipeg lab, that, of course, has the potential to be politically explosive not just for the government of the day, but also for Canada as a whole in terms of the Western alliance uh, with both our allies and our democratic partners. And so I wonder whether those documents, this is not just about protecting the government and perhaps um, people not having acted quickly enough on concerns about security clearances, um, but whether these documents potentially contain some explosive evidence and material in terms of the relationship that intelligence has established between the Winnipeg lab and the Wuhan lab 
that uh, the government is seeking under all circumstances to keep from public eye because the steps that we're seeing the government take to try to make sure these documents have no chance of seeing uh, the light of day to be possibly uh, debated in public uh, seem to be quite extraordinary to me, even for a national security investigation. And this is the first time, is it not, that this kind of suit, lawsuit, has been undertaken by a government to sue the Speaker of the Parliament? It would certainly buy the government enough a runway um, if there is going to be an election in the coming months uh, to make sure these documents don't uh, become public for the time, p- uh, time being, given that the federal court will likely take some time to um, assess the suit. And there might possibly be, regardless of what the outcome is, an appeal um, of that uh, particular federal decision. Uh, to the Supreme Court, given the importance of the relationship and the constitutional precedent uh, in terms of the relationship between the political executive and parliamentary sovereignty. But look, since 1848, we have had the principle of responsible government as the fundamental constitutional principle in this country. That is to say, the government of the day is responsible to the people through parliament. And the government, in its decision of not um, complying uh, with Parliament's will to uh, provide those documents uh, in a um, and, and having a parliamentary law clerk, a clerk redact them according to federal legislation uh, before they're handed over to committee. Um, that seems to be um, fundamentally challenging the very basic constitutional principle of Canadian democracy, Canadian parliamentary Westminster democracy. Well, many questions will come out of this conversation, and certainly. You have a great deal of credibility nationally and internationally on intelligence matters, and these are questions that demand answers. Christian, thank you so much for coming on the program, speaking about this. Thank you, Roy, for the opportunity to uh, discuss this important matter. So I thought long and hard about whether I wanted to do this segment or not, whether I was going to air it or not. And ultimately, I decided to do this after it was suggested that we all spend a little reflective time on Canada Day. Now, I celebrate just internally being Canadian, having the right to live in Canada, being a Canadian citizen, because it's an amazing country. It has huge potential to grow, and positively, but we have problems. We have problems in our regional relationships. We have problems with um, governments. We have problems. We have issues with language. We have issues that we confront, but not particularly effectively, in my view. But it all boiled down to me to what the individual experience is, what we experience as individual people and how we fit into the Canadian mosaic. And for immigrants like me, it's a whole different experience than it is for someone who's born in Canada and raised in this country. So I'm going to share some of my experience with you. And I tweeted out some of it at the Roy Green Show. You've seen it. It got quite a bit of response over the last number of days. And I don't very often talk about my life. I've shared a few things with you. Some of them you'll recognize in what I'm about to share with you. But I don't often talk about my life. It's 
It's uh, it's something we don't do as talk show hosts in, in this country. I was very open with you when my wife was battling cancer and died. and um, So here's, here's a bit of my story about becoming Canadian and why it matters so much to me. I lived a, a great life as a kid in England and Switzerland until my dad died when I was 12. And then everything changed. So I'm not going to go into specific details, but suffice it to say my mother and I were persuaded to move to Canada by family already here, and that just didn't work out after we arrived. And we were summarily shipped off to Montreal in the middle of a winter night. So we'd never been to Montreal. We had no idea of what the city was about. We were just driven into the city by a taxi and dropped off. And I was 13 years of age. I knew nothing about this new and massive country and new and massive city of Montreal and the, the life which was waiting for me here after I arrived from bucolic Switzerland. It was a cold night and uh, my mom just couldn't handle it. She sat on the sidewalk and cried. We had nowhere to go. We didn't know anybody. So I stopped a police cruiser. And I asked the officer for help, explained as best I could what the situation was. And so he took my mother and me into the police car, and he drove us to a Salvation Army homeless shelter, which is where we lived for a number of weeks, perhaps longer. I don't really have a firm reference of time. And this was my introduction to Montreal, and really my introduction to Canada. We had spent a month or two with our relatives, and that just didn't work out. So here we were living in the in the homeless shelter, and uh, I would go to sleep in a bunk bed in one part of the building. My mother would go to sleep with adults in another part of the building. And I went to school, and uh, then I'd go back to the homeless shelter. And uh, we lived there until people we met on the ship coming over to Canada from Europe took us into their home after my mother contacted them. They had been very solicitous when we were heading over the North Atlantic in January. That was an experience. With the ship drifting at sea anchor for two days because the waves were so massive, the storm was so huge. Anyway, So these incredibly generous people who had known about our situation after talking to my mom took us into their home. And we lived there for about three months. And we made some arrangements, and my mother did, with the help of the the, the people we had met, made some arrangements so that we could get on to social assistance. And it worked out that we received a $75 a month welfare check while the rent was $73 a month, which didn't leave a whole lot of money left over. Now, there were generous people who, there are always general, generous people who will step up. If they know of your issues, your problems, they'll do what they can to help you. And often it's people who don't have very much themselves. But two bucks left over after paying the rent, really, well, it wasn't, uh, let's put it this way, hunger was a constant companion for quite some time. Uh, I would go to restaurants and I would ask staff there if I could come by at the end of the day and have the food that they uh, 
hadn't served. And generally, they were very, very kind, gracious, helpful. So I'd go back there 10 or 11 o'clock at night, and uh, they would provide me with packaged food, and I'd go home, and my mother and I would eat. Um, one time, my teacher sent me out of the classroom on a bogus mission. I didn't obviously know it at the time, but while I was gone, he asked my classmates to bring in canned food so my mom and I would have something to eat at Christmas time. And uh, I started to make great friends my own age, and I began hanging out with them on the streets of Montreal, and I was by this time getting kind of rough around the edges. But I didn't want to upset my mother, so I became a bit of a chameleon. Around her, I was her son, who she knew on the streets, a bit different. It's just the way life evolved. But I was lucky enough to be offered a job at a Montreal radio station while in high school, spinning records. I knew nothing about uh, radio, nothing. But my mom had gotten to know the wife of the general manager of the rock radio station in town, and he asked me if I wanted to work at the station in the summertime. You betcha. So I would work nine-hour shifts spinning records for 50 bucks, which was pretty good money at that time for my mother and me. I worked each Saturday and Sunday, sometimes 18 hours, nine-hour shift. If the other guy didn't show up, I got to do both of them. And so one Sunday night, first time I got on the air, one Sunday night, the uh, the on-air jock arrived, and he stopped off at a few bars on the way to the radio station. And even I knew he couldn't go on the air in that condition, so I called the general manager, and I told him, and he said, who else is there, Roy? I said, nobody. And I will never forget his words. They were this, tag your it. And that was the first time I went on the air. I think I was 16. So it started to make a few, make a few bucks, at least, you know, it bought food and we found an office environment where we lived in the back of the office at a reduced rent, cleaned the place each night, didn't have our own bathroom, had to share it with clients and staff during the day. That's the way it was. We'd save all year to set aside 10 bucks to rent a TV for the month of December so we could watch a little television. First Monday of the new year, they'd come and take it away. That's all right. We were at least that far. Um, I learned incrementally to become more independent and um, was talked out of leaving school early by a vice principal who sat me down during summer vacation for a full day and talked to me all day long and talked me out of leaving school at 16. By 19 years of age, after a few years working in the radio station on weekends, I applied for a radio station gig at another station I wasn't qualified for, but I got the job. And here's how it happened. The general manager, whose name was Blair, Mr. Blair said to me, Roy, I'll call you by 6 p.m. on Friday and let you know if you have the job. So I went back to our place, which was, you know, the shared office space. And I sat by the telephone. 6 p.m. arrived, no phone call. 6.01, I'm on the phone. Mr. Blair, you said you'd call me by 6 p.m. Friday. It's 6.01. Roy, can you start Monday at 9 o'clock? He told me later, became a very good friend of mine, very close friend of mine, told me later, I never would have hired you. You didn't have the, the experience, but I loved your attitude. So that's how it began. So that's just a snapshot, a little bit of a snapshot of life beginning in Canada for Roy Green. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, 
Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.